Morning, y'all. If you have a Bible, open up with me to Matthew chapter 9, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. Uh, if you're new or you're visiting with us or even joining us online, welcome. We're, we're finishing out a series today that we've been in now for several weeks, looking at the core values of our church, the, the things that we aspire to do and to be as the people of God. And, um, our ambitions, what does it look like for us to, to aim for particular things as uh, as, a, as a local church. And so we've talked about this each week where we look at kind of the big picture of discipleship in week one. Uh, we've been commissioned by King Jesus out into the world to make disciples who will make disciples. And so as we saw in the early stages even of Jesus's own ministry where he called people to himself, he, he, he invited them to come and see what he was about, to, 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 to have a front row seat to the transforming power of the good news of, of the gospel under the power of Jesus in people's lives. And the way he would shape them and form them for the mission he was calling them into. And then we, we saw uh, what that gospel is in week two. We, we did a deep dive in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul tells the church that he's reminding them of the gospel, the thing that is of first and most importance, that Jesus lived our life, died our death, and rose again on the third day. And then last week, we talked about the idea of community, what we just even saw in, in, in that video, that we, we're a people who are knit together in Jesus, that because we are one with him, we are united to him, we are also united to one another. And so that means certain things about the way we uh, relate to each other. We relate with an air of vulnerability, that we're, we're, we're honest with one another about our struggles and, and our sins, but also about the hope that we have in Jesus and, and, and then together, collectively, we're, we're being formed for the, the purposes of God. And that's what we're going to talk about today, mission, this the, the high aspirational value of the church where we are sent into the world for a specific purpose, where we are God's people in the world for the glory of King Jesus and to make his gospel known to all nations. When Jesus dispatched his first disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel, he says, go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's what we're about and that's what we want to be as a church. We want to be a church that is sent on mission uh, for God. And as Chris, Chris Wright once said, I think it was, it's not that God has a mission for uh, his church. He has a church for his mission. And so what does it mean for us to be a part of the mission of God in the world? That's what we're going to look at today here in Matthew chapter 9. In these closing verses at the end of this chapter where Matthew records exactly verbatim what he said all the way back in chapter 4, this is what the ministry of Jesus looked like. And then we get to see inside, kind of behind the curtain in the heart of Jesus, why Jesus did the things that he did. And then if we had time this morning, we would look at chapter 10, because that's where Jesus sends his disciples out for the first time to do the things he has summoned and called them to do. But today we're just going to look at verses 35 through 38. Look with me, if you will. Matthew writes, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. I, uh, I studied this week in, in both looking at the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10 and how Jesus sends out 
his disciples for the first time, and they're, they're kind of naive, and the things that they celebrate aren't really the things that Jesus wants them to celebrate, and they're excited, but almost in kind of a dangerous sort of way. And Jesus, the, the demons obey us. And it got me to thinking about the first time I was sent out on mission. And it's a great story. It was the first time I ever preached a sermon. I was, I'd been baptized into the, the largest Baptist church in our association of churches in Oklahoma, where, where I grew up. And because we were the largest church and what, uh, an association that covered a vast sort of rural area, anytime that some of the smaller churches out in sort of the backwoods of where we were, anytime some of those smaller churches were lacking a pastor or lacking someone to preach on a Sunday, the association director would call the pastor of the church I was a part of and say, hey, do you, can you send someone out? You guys have a lot of people. They have a vacancy this week or they have a need. Can you send someone over there to preach on this coming Sunday? And so... I was an intern at that church. I worked with a student ministry. I lived in a little house they let me live in right beside the church parking lot. They fed me pizza on Wednesday nights after the student ministry stuff was over. And I cleaned the church vans for $25 a week. That was my gig. And on Thursday, I walk over to the church to do some of my responsibilities. And the pastor, who had been kind of discipling me and mentoring, mentoring me, said, Hey, guess what? I said, What? And he said, You're preaching this Sunday. And I was like, here? And he was like, no, no, you're going to a church in our association. They needed someone, and I think you're ready. And so get ready. <laughs> and I was like, what are you doing, man? Like, I've never done this before. So he, he brought me into his office. He said, well, you know, have you read a passage of the scriptures that's like stirred you lately? I was like, yeah, I've read this the other day. He's like, okay, start with that. I went and worked on it, came back, pitched it to him. He, he basically said, that's terrible. Try again. And so I wrote my second sermon the, the next day, and eventually I kind of had something put together. And he's like, okay. These are the parts of preaching that you may not learn yet, but you, you need to dress differently than the way you dress. So he's like, do you have a suit? And I was like, no. And he's like, okay, that's probably not a bad thing. This is a really rural church. So uh, do you have a shirt and tie? And I was like, well, I, you mean like a shirt that has like a collar and buttons? He's like, yeah. I was like, I think I got one of those. And I didn't tell him it was a denim like Levi shirt because it's the only shirt that I have with the collar on it. And he's like, do you have a tie? If not, I can loan you one. I was like, oh, I think I do. And so my sister worked at the grocery store in town, and she had to wear a tie as a, as a cashier. <laughs> and so she had, we had one tie in my entire house, and it was a red tie with a Dalmatian dog on it. And so it's like, yeah, I got a tie. And so I had one pair of khakis that I had to buy for like senior pitchers that, the year before. Uh, and I, I had dress shoes, but they were black and white wingtip Doc Martens, if you remember Doc Martens. The, I mean, this is, you can't make it up. And he's like, hey, and take your earrings out because, you know, we love you and show you grace, but not all the churches in our association may, and do something about your hair because my hair was long. And so I was like, I'll see if I can figure that out. So I roll up to this church in that outfit with my sermon. When I get there, I realized that the church was 100% Choctaw. It was it was a native church. It was a, all Choctaw. So my people, even though I don't look like them, but, uh, and so there's like 40 folks there, some of whom Choctaw is their first language. And that's, I got to preach the sermon. So I roll in, uh, they're like, Hey, you're, you're early. We're about to start Sunday school. Can you teach Sunday school as well? I was like, sure. And so by God's grace, I had done my devotion that morning. So I was like, uh, I read this in the Psalms today. Let's talk about that. So Sunday school lasted about five minutes. And then everyone sat around. And then when it came time for church, they, they sang a few songs and I got up to preach. And I'm pretty sure my entire sermon was about seven minutes long. So you're like probably about as long as this entire story. Yes. It was about seven minutes long. And uh, I, got, I got done and I was like, oh man, that was, that was terrible. And I got in my car and I, I drove back and 
Uh, we had Sunday night church at my church that, 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 that night. And so when I got there, the pastor said, hey, how did it go today? And I was like, oh, man, it was, it was like seven minutes, the whole sermon. And he's like, did you share all three of your points? I was like, yeah, I had three points. And I did an invitation, and I led the prayer. And he's like, oh, that's great. And so that night at Sunday night church, we would do what was called testimony time, where people would share testimonies. And so that pastor called me up. And he's like, hey, tell them what happened today. And I was like, well, I, I preached a really bad sermon <laughs> in a really terrible outfit to a bunch of people who I don't know if their English was that great, you know. And, and he's like, well, tell the church your points. And so I told him the points. I basically preached the whole sermon again. And then he had me sit down. Well, afterwards, this little sweet old lady that like, helped out in the kitchen came up to me. And she said, what you shared tonight, that, that spoke to me. And she's like, I, I think you have a gift. And I think you should keep doing this. Anytime you get an opportunity, you should do, you should do this. And I thought about that as I was thinking about Matthew chapter 10 and Jesus sending the disciples out. And this one exchange that I have, I, at first I felt so terrible about the whole experience. But after that lady said that to me, I was like, you know what? Maybe God used me. And maybe he's gifted me. And maybe there's a point here. Maybe there's purpose here. Maybe there's meaning here. Maybe God can do something with my life that I could not have done with my life had I tried my best in all these other ways. Maybe... Maybe because of the work of the Holy Spirit and the redemption God is even working out in my own soul, something's, something's going on here. And so when we talk about mission today, that, that's what, I, that's what I, I long for you to experience. When we talk about mission, especially mission in the local church, I don't want you to hear, hey, um, God is this, this, this scary being that the second you say, I surrender to you, he's going to send you to the most far-flung place on the planet and give you the most miserable experience you could ever imagine. Because sometimes when we hear mission, that's what we think. Or we think that God is some sort of heavenly accountant making sure you're doing all the things so that you can get in and he'll be pleased with you. When I'm talking about mission today, I, I, I long for, I hope for our church, for every individual within our church to have that experience of God can use me. God wants to use me. There's, there's fulfillment. There's, there's possibility. There's all sorts of things that I can't even hope for or imagine that God can bring to fruition in my life if I will but just surrender to him. If I will just give him control. If I will let him gift me in the way that only he can through the Holy Spirit to do what he's called me to do. That's what we're talking about today. And so with that in mind, the, the hope or the ambition of the local church to be the church, to be the people of God and the place that God has planted them for the purposes of God in the world, I know no better place to look than, than directly at the ministry of Jesus. What did Jesus do? Because if we're disciples of his, then our life should be formed in the way that his was formed. The, the shape, the, 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 the telos, the goal, the orientation, the hope that Jesus has, that, that should shape us as well. And so that's what I want to do this morning here in the closing passages of Matthew chapter 9. I want to look at the ministry of Jesus. What was Jesus committed to? And then, then maybe look at the motivation of Jesus. What compelled him to live in these ways? And maybe today, perhaps he would even compel us in a similar fashion. And then what then is the mission of the church? If we can see the ministry of Jesus and the motivation of Jesus, what's the mission that he has for us? That's where we're going this morning. First off, the ministry of Jesus. Look back in verse 35. Mark, uh, Matthew writes there, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease 
and every affliction. Now, I said this earlier. If, if we had time today, we would go back and look at the end of Matthew chapter 4. Matthew says the exact same thing, uh, verbatim. Chapter 4, verse 23, I think it is. The same verse is written there where Matthew is telling the, the, the reader or the listener, in our, in our case today, us. He's telling us this is what Jesus was about. And anytime he states something more than once, he's trying to make a point. This is what made up the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was committed to these three things. The proclamation of the kingdom of God. He was committed to proclamation. Teaching in the synagogues or formation. Forming disciples for the mission. Undoing the, the bad thinking and misunderstandings and giving them truth so that they could be shaped by him to, to live like him. And then finally, restoration. Healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus was taking the things that have been broken and marred because of sin and creation, undoing those things and setting people up to be healed, to be whole, to be well, so that they too could flourish and, and serve in the kingdom of God. So, so let's break those three things down real quick. Proclamation. Jesus was committed to proclaiming the good news of the gospel of God's kingdom. If we, if we had, uh, you know, hours on end, we would go through all the Gospels and you would begin to see quite clearly that Jesus had a particular ministry of announcing certain things. In Mark's Gospel, Mark opens up by saying that when Jesus showed up, he was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, because Jesus had showed up, the, 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 the announcement was made to, to repent. That is to change your mind about who or what you think will save you. Who or what you are looking to, to be your Lord and your Savior. Repent, turn from that, turn from sin, turn from self, and embrace the kingdom of heaven, which is the purpose of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And so Jesus had at the very forefront of his ministry, this ministry of announcement. It wasn't first and foremost an action. It was something he was going and saying, I have good news for you. I have a gospel for you. The life that you have lived that is marred and broken by sin and by frustration and futility, that life can change today. If you will but turn from that and embrace me, he would say. If you will come to me and be found in me. We can look at all the gospels and see this morning how the ministry of Jesus was one of proclamation. If you lose your life for my sake, then you'll truly find it. Who of you by worrying can add a single day to his life? Jesus goes around announcing these things to his followers, telling the world who he is and what he has come to do. Namely, that reconciliation and renewal itself was possible. So he had a ministry of proclamation, and he has a ministry of formation. One would suppose that if you really pushed hard against the popular opinion of the day, you would have to undo some things. You'd have to, a, a lot of things to explain. And that's exactly what we see in the Gospels about the ministry of Jesus. He goes into these cities and towns and villages. He goes into these places and into their synagogues, and he begins challenging the, uh, the, the, the popular thinking of the day. The Sermon on the Mount would be the quintessential example of this. He, he says over and over and over again, you've heard it say, said, but I say. You've heard it said, you, you shouldn't um, com commit adultery, but I say anyone who looks lustfully upon a woman has already committed adultery in his heart. You've heard it said, uh, uh, and on and on and on his ministry goes. He's, he's undoing the wrong thinking and, and teaching and training his disciples in, in a new way. In order that his followers would be formed by him. Jesus cares deeply about our conduct. 
Yes, he has a, a ministry of proclamation where he's swinging wide open the, the gates of heaven. And anyone who wants to get in on this can get in on this. But coming into that kingdom is coming under the rule of a king. And that king has a particular way of life for you. He wants to shape your conduct. He wants you to rethink the things that grip you or hold you. He wants to reformat your ambitions and your desires. He wants to show you how to love your enemies, how to die to self, how to give up uh, uh, the, the, the things of this world in order to gain the things of heaven, things that, that, that do not perish, or, or moth or rust do not destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. He wants to give you real treasure. He wants to give you real life and life that is abundant. So the ministry of Jesus was announcing the good news of the gospel and also forming his disciples in these ways. But, but don't miss the significance that, that Matthew tags on the end of this. He goes into the cities, the towns, and the villages. In other words, Jesus isn't uh, an urban-only guy or a rural-only guy. He's, he's both. He'll go to the big places and the small places because he's about the kingdom of heaven. And when he goes there, he does something besides just announcing and teaching. He also heals says he heals every affliction and every disease. His ministry is a ministry of restoration. At the very forefront of Jesus' ministry is this foundational feature of taking out what's broken and restoring what's been lost. We'll see it in just a minute. Jesus was motivated to do this because he was pushing back darkness and pushing back sin. And in many ways, that sin and that darkness had crept into people's bodies and into their minds. Places like in Gadara where the Gadarene demoniac is, is an outcast from society because he's tormented by a legion of demons. And Jesus comes in and heals the man. Like Jairus' daughter, like the widow at Nain. On and on and on we could go. Even, even Zacchaeus, who's, who's crippled by greed. A sickness of a different sort. Jesus wants to liberate him. Jesus wants people to be well. He wants them to be whole. He wants them to be restored. And when you think about it, sometimes, sometimes this can be an unnerving idea because you think, man, if anyone truly encounters the, the proclamation of Jesus the, the, and, and the, the formation of Jesus, then, then he's going to rework some things. Wholeness looks like newness in Jesus' vocabulary. So he's going to change some stuff, not just about those on the margins who are broken, but even us. And so we've summarized the, G the, the ministry of Jesus like this at Living Hope. Jesus accepted responsibility for the lostness and the brokenness of the places that he encountered. And so Matthew says in chapter 4 and here again in chapter 9, when Jesus goes to a city or a town or a village, he looks at it and he sees the need and he sees the hurt and he sees the pain. And he begins by announcing good news. I got good news for y'all. It wasn't supposed to be this way. And because of me, God has sent me to restore these things. And I also have good news for y'all. Your life can change. You can be reformed into the, the image and likeness of God's only son. Not only that, he can heal. He can restore. He can renew. There's now a, an, an utter hope-filled existence on the horizon for any follower of Jesus because of his power, because of his mind, because of his grace. So that's the ministry of Jesus. But then Matthew doesn't just leave us with that so that we wouldn't just take this as like, uh, here's some things that we're supposed to do as well. No, he pulls back the curtain and he says, here's what's going on in the soul of Jesus whenever he sees in the cities and towns and villages the things that are broken, the things that are lost. He shows us the motivation of Jesus. Look with me in, 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 uh, in verse 36. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. When he saw the crowds, when he looked upon them, whenever he, he, he made eye contact with the people in the masses, he saw that they were helpless and they were harassed. And he had, and there's the big word, compassion for them. 
We studied Matthew's gospel a few years ago from beginning to end, and it struck me as we walked all the way through the gospel of Matthew how many times this word for compassion is used. It's Matthew's most uh, famous word for what was in the heart of Jesus in, in virtually every encounter that he has that, uh, where someone is broken or someone's life is messed up or someone is, is, is demon-possessed. It's this word compassion is the Greek word splonknizomai. It, it basically means the, the guts of Jesus, the inner workings of Jesus' very soul are afflicted by what he sees externally in the pain and suffering of others. Compassion. And I love the word because it's, what, it's the orientation and the perspective that we get of what God has towards us when we're broken, when we're hurting, and when we're suffering. Compassion. But we see how Jesus is motivated by it because he sees. It says, I don't think it's accidental that it says in verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he's, he has an awareness that leads to this. Jesus is, is looking out at the suffering. He's, he's He's embracing the trial. He's embracing the hardship. He's embracing the difficulty. And so he's watching and looking for opportunity to, to show and to exercise this disposition of soul, this, this compassion towards others. We, our staff studied a book several years ago written by a guy named Paul Miller titled Love Walked Among Us. And the book is essentially Paul's, uh, Paul Miller's attempt to show you that the ministry of Jesus in all the Gospels has this pattern about it. He, he saw, he felt, and he acted. He, he looked, he felt, and he acted. He looked upon things. It says that when he saw the widow of Nain, he felt compassion for her. When Jesus looked upon Jerusalem, he wept for her. When he saw Zacchaeus in a tree, he invited him to come down. He, he saw them and felt something for them. And so when we look at the motivation of Jesus, it begins by him looking upon things. He's not turning a blind eye to suffering. He's not looking away from pain. He sees what's going on around him. And so if we're going to be a church that is about the mission of God, it doesn't begin by simply studying what, what's, what's broken and wrong. It begins by looking into the eyes of the people around us. What's broken here? What, what's, what's off kilter here? Where has sin infected something here? We see. And then when we see, when we look at something and we, we gaze upon it the way Jesus does, it leads to the second motivation, I think, which is compassion. The, the, the prompting of Jesus, the heart of Jesus that is moved towards those in pain and those suffering and those who are oppressed. He, catch this, y'all, felt for them. The perfect son of God, sinless, obedient in every way. When he looked upon sin and brokenness, it wasn't disdain or shame that he felt. It was compassion. The heart of God towards those who are suffering. The heart of, the, the heart of God to those who are, who are afflicted. The heart of God to those who are possessed. Jesus takes the time to consider their plight and understand their experience. And if you hear anything today, hear this. That mission of God is still ongoing because Jesus is alive and well, seated at the right hand of the Father. When he looks upon you and your suffering, he still feels compassion. The book of Hebrews tells us that he intercedes for us. He stands before our Heavenly Father and makes uh, prayers and, and, and intercessions on our behalf. That whenever we don't know how to pray, Paul says the Spirit intercedes for us as well, where the, the compassionate heart of God is directed toward us, toward us in these ways. That's what Jesus feels. And if we're going to be a people who live on mission for King Jesus, then we've got to tap into compassion as well. I mean, if you see anything in the Gospels, you see this collision between Jesus and his ministry that is filled with compassion and the religious rulers and leaders of the day who are the most uncompassionate people perhaps in, on the planet. They have all the, the truth of the Old Testament. They have 
all the ways that God has revealed himself, but instead of using it to be compassionate towards people, they're bludgeoning people with it. Jesus confronts them in Matthew 23. He says, look, you, you, you go across land and sea trying to win a convert. It's not that they weren't missional. They were very missional. But he says, but whenever you go win the convert, you make them twice the son of hell that you are. You've missed the point. So there's ways of doing mission that, that abuses the truth of what God's word says. If it's not about compassion, it's not about Jesus. And, and part of what's so extremely eye-opening about Jesus, whenever he sees the pain of others and he feels compassion, he doesn't see that as an obstacle. Look at what he says to the disciples. He looks upon the crowds in verse 36, and he has compassion for them because he says that they're harassed and they're helpless. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And then he says to his disciples in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Do you catch that? So when Jesus looks out and sees pain and sees suffering, he sees potential, which is utterly unlike us. When we look out at pain and suffering, we go, whoa, that's going to be, that's going to be messy. That's going to be hard. How can I get some distance between me and that so that I don't take that on myself? Jesus says, no, there's pain out there. There's hurt out there. There's suffering and oppression out there. God can do something there. That's a harvest waiting to be reaped. There's, there's redemptive potential, as we talked about in week one of this. That's what Jesus sees. When Jesus sees the wayward, when he sees the sinner, when he sees the prodigal that's gone off to the far country to spoil all the riches that they had, Jesus doesn't see that and go, oh, man, let them have their way. No, he goes after them. He pursues them. Why? Because there's great redemptive potential there. God can change and transform these stories. He can change the narrative. Despite the challenges, the harvest remains. Sometimes it's hard for us to remember because life is hard. Life is filled with suffering. And the state of the world can feel overwhelming. But the people of God are people who per persist in hope because there's always the potential for God to break in and break through. There's always potential for God to redeem something. So when we see what's happening, even if it is on the far side of the world and it looks totally broken and messed up and irredeemable, we know that God can still be up to something there. God will do something there. God can change things. I remember this not just whenever I watch the news, but whenever I sit with a couple whose marriage is suffering. I remember this not whenever I scroll through my news feed and see how something's on the far side of the world's messed up. I, I see it whenever I see parents who are grieving over, over a wayward child. Or when I see someone caring for their aging parents, they don't know how this is going to end. In all of this, we've got to see potential. God is up to something. Jesus sees the masses. He feels compassion for them. And then he looks at his disciples and has the audacity to say, hey, y'all, check out the harvest. What if we could raise up new workers? What if the laborers would go into the field? What if the, what if the group that we have here of disciples would grow and expand so that we could be confronting even more pain, even more possession, even more suffering? What if there were more of us to deal with, with all that that's going on out there? And that brings us to the mission of the church. If you were to go on into chapter 10, you would see that Jesus sees this. He, he tells the disciples, hey, pray that God would raise up laborers. Pray that our, our numbers would multiply, not so that we could just swell into one big tribe and talk about how great we are, so that we could be dispersed out into the world to deal with some of the stuff that's broken, to, to wrestle with some of the pain, to be available to those who are hurting. What, what if God could multiply us so that the potential would be multiplied out there? And that's the, the, the mentality that Jesus has as he says, therefore, pray earnestly, verse 38, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. 
we say it this way at Living Hope, with our group's ministry and especially with the way that we want to approach doing mission, we want to do mission together because we are the people of God, as Paul would tell both the church in Corinth and the church in Rome. Let none of us think too highly of ourselves. Let us realize that we're a part of the body of Christ and you have a function and I have a function and you have a gift and we have gifts. And so together, collectively, we work to do the mission of God together. And so what that means then is that our groups, we want our groups and, and even our church to be a place of invitation, always inviting others in. If Jesus looks out at the masses and sees them and all of their brokenness, all their corruption and all their sin and says, this is a harvest waiting to be reaped, then we too need to have a disposition towards the world that says, come get in on this. Anyone can get in on this. If God could save and rescue me and redeem me, he can do it for anybody. It's the, it's the blind man who's confronted by the religious leaders. Hey, tell us about Jesus. I don't know. I was blind and now I see, man. That's all I got. He's a miracle worker. And if he can do that for me, he can do it for anyone. So everyone should have access to this. Everyone should get in on this. So Jesus' ministry of proclamation. He goes into the cities and the towns and the villages. He goes to the heart of Jerusalem and he goes to Gadara, to the far side of the world. He goes all over the known world at that time announcing, you can get in on this. And so the church, it's the people of God who've been rescued and restored and redeemed themselves, should look out into their cul-de-sac, into their neighborhood, into their school, into their workplace and say, anyone can get in on this. God's not finished with you. God's got, God's got plans for you. God's going to do something in you and through you. By faith and repentance, he can change anyone. We're a people of invitation. We're also a people of imitation. The church forms the people of God into the image of Jesus. We teach one another how to walk in the ways of Jesus. We model for one another a life of awareness and of compassion and of potential. It's why, like, when our groups get together, and inevitably we're going to talk about some hard things, like what was in the video this morning. We're going to say something like, man, it's been a really hard week for us. Rather than commiserating on that, like, oh, yeah, everyone's, it's just terrible. What, the world's falling. The sky's falling. What, what, what's going what's to be of all this? Instead, God grants someone with a gift of encouragement to say, I hear that that's really, really hard for you. I'm going to commit to pray for you. And if I can help you in a tangible way, because here's how God has gifted me, that's what I'm going to do. That's imitating Jesus. Jesus sees needs and he moves towards it. He sees those who are broken and he moves towards them. A man is demon-possessed. He casts it out. Someone is, is, is injured in some way. Someone's on the verge of death or has died. Jesus brings them back to life. He's always gazing at those on the margins, always looking to invite in the poor and the afflicted and the oppressed. And so if we are his people, then we imitate him in these ways. I talked to my friend uh, Pete DeMoss this week. Many of y'all know Pete. He served as our directional pastor for the first nine years of our church. And, um, and I got to just thinking, talking about Pete, because he's, he's you know, kind of retired. He lives he living that retirement life back in Colorado. And um, he was telling me about his church and how their, their group that he's a part of has just continued to, to swell and balloon, which was always a problem with Pete. Any group he got in, it was always growing. And I thought about that. I thought, you know why? Because he was the guy that no matter what group we were sitting in, he was always thinking of someone who wasn't there but, sh but should be there. And they only weren't there because they just hadn't been invited yet. He ran a ministry in our church for several years called Starting Point, where the end of the starting point was always, hey, all of y'all have friends who really need to get in on this. Give me their names and I'll reach out to them. It's imitating Jesus. Who... who who could be redeemed? Who could be restored? Who could be renewed if we would just, in the way of Jesus, take initiative? And that's the last thing we talk about here as a church. We're a people of initiative. We look for opportunities. When we see pain, we don't run from it. We run towards it. 
And whether that be in disaster relief situation or whether it be a pain that is caused by unbelief on the far side of the world. God has raised up people to go to all, any number of places on this planet through Living Hope who just looked out and said, that's a dark place with a lot of suffering. I think God's sending me there. God has sent people into homes and in the suburbs and, and to, to run down apartments in, in our city. We've been sent all over the place, and we have to take initiative because centralized mission is too static. The dynamics of, of a life of mission is, is that we always have one ear to the, to the gospel word and one eye towards the people who are hurting. That's the way we operate as the people of God. Who do you have influence with? What hands can only you hold? What experiences have you gone through that were deeply pain and hurtful, but God brought you through it? And now he wants to send you back to people in a similar situation so that you can be a, a, a person of light, a person of hope, and a person of peace to those who are currently suffering. Those are, sort, those are the sorts of questions that we wrestle with here. Or as we like to say, if Jesus had this ministry, then disciples of Jesus accept responsibility for the lostness and the brokenness of the places that they inhabit. We look around and we say, that's broken. God has sent me here for a reason. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and see what God wants to do here. Now, here's how I want us to end today. Jesus looks out with compassion at the world. And he doesn't tell his disciples, now y'all better get busy. What does he say? Pray. Pray, and here's the qualifier, earnestly. The Greek word for that is a word that means beg. Go before the Lord and beg him to raise people up who will address these things. He will say, as Isaiah did, hear my God, send me. God, take the experiences that I have. Take, take the redemption that you've worked in me and pour me out for the sake of others. That's the prayer of a follower of Jesus who's on mission for the king. So I want us to end today just praying to the Lord of the harvest. And I think there's some ways that we can pray in light of what we just read that would maybe even shape our hearts. We can pray prayers of awareness, which is prayers where we say things like, God, what do I need to see? God, who do I need to invite? Lord, who's the person that you brought into my life? And maybe that person that no one else can really stand to be around very long, but for whatever reason, you've given me redemptive patience with them. God, how can I be used by you to, to help them, to, to, to see them grow, to see them mature? God, who do I need to invite in? Who do I need to be on the lookout for? Or prayers of compassion. God, where is their pain and where is their suffering and how can I be of use? Who are those on the margins that you've brought somehow into my orbit and now you're calling me to, again, roll up my sleeves and address it? Or prayers of formation. Lord, where is repentance needed in my own heart and life so that I can be of use to you? Where, the, where have the things of the world so gripped my soul that I can't even look out and see what you want to do with me anymore because I'm so overwhelmed with lust or with greed or with being captive to my own pride and my own ego? God, help me to see. How do I need to be formed? And then prayers of restoration. Lord, what do you want to fix and how do you want to use me to fix it? Where would you have me go? What would you have me do? So I'm going to ask you to just bow for a minute. We're going to sit in silence, silent prayer. Hopefully the silence speaks volumes that we're a people who go before God regularly and say, Lord, raise up, raise up laborers for the harvest. And, and this morning that includes me. Where do I need to go? Where would you send me? What do I need to see? How do I need to repent? I'll give you a few moments in silence as we pray, and in just a second, I'll pray and close this out.
Jesus, you, you taught us that if we seek to gain our life, we'll lose it. But if we lose our life for your sake, that's when we're going to find it. And so, God, I pray that today you've stirred hearts and the souls of your people such that, that we see that the mission you've called us into is, is not one for self-glory. It's not a to-do list. God, you want us to discover real life, life of purpose, life of meaning, life of fulfillment and satisfaction that comes from knowing that we're being used by you to, to proclaim the good news of the gospel, to see people's lives shaped and formed by the person of Jesus, and to be workers of restoration and renewal in the areas of influence and vocation that you've given to us. God, you long to see people come to you. You long to see things renewed and restored. Jesus, you're a God who heals and a God who rescues. And you, for whatever reason, because of your grace and mercy, invite us to take part in that. And so, Lord, I I pray that in the days and weeks to come, you would fan into flame these gifts that you've given to your people, the desires and the hopes that we have for the world You would cause us to see these divine appointments that you've set up for us where we encounter people on the margins or in hard places and where by the gifts and experiences you've given to us, we can be of use. We can be sent and dispersed into a dark world with a message of true light and life. And Lord, would this all be to the end that you're glorified. Jesus, that your good news is heard, that people turn to you in faith and Your kingdom would come, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray and ask these things in the name of King Jesus, our Lord. Amen.